Good morning. My name is Russell Balicki, and I'm one of the elders here at Del Rey. Um, this morning, we are going to be covering the final judgments. We're in a, a section of our foundation's curriculum on eschatology, so studying the end times, things in the future. Um, the final judgment, I think, is fairly described as the defining moment of human history, where everything is really looking forward to it or anticipating it, assuming it. You think about the gospel and Jesus dying on, on the cross for our sins, anticipating the final judgment so we can be made right. And so final judgment is, is the reality that God has appointed a time in the future when all people will stand before him and give an account of their lives that will fix their eternal destinies. Um, it's a reality that I think should cause us to pause and, and to think carefully about our own lives and yeah, to realize that this life is is bigger than than us. It's not, you know, this life isn't about me. It's not about what makes me happy, not about my career, but ultimately we're going to stand before a holy God who created the entire world. And this this world, our lives are about him and his glory. So it's a it's a big doctrine that should really cause us to orient ourselves toward God. Um, the main idea of our class this morning is that Jesus Christ will righteously judge all people, fixing their eternal destiny based on whether they confess him as Lord and Savior and determining their reward or punishment based on their deeds. But we're going to unpack all of that as we work through um, our class this morning. If you didn't get a handout, there's some handouts in the back on the table there. Um, they'll be helpful as, you, as we go through. Um, But let us uh, begin by praying. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together to study your word and this uh, rich and magnificent doctrine. Lord, I I feel inadequate to the task of being able to uh, communicate this in my own words, so I pray that uh, I would not do that. I pray that uh, I would use use your words and that you would speak through your word through me and, and that you would be glorified in this class and that we would... rightly understand our relationship uh, toward you and that we would have a a grasp on what is coming in the future, Lord, that there is is judgment and that there is hope in judgment through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So before we actually dive into the final judgment, I think it's helpful just to lay some groundwork about how do we even approach passages of Scripture that talk about the future. Um, you see on your handout, what I've written there is, is don't shy away, but approach in humility and gratitude and be comfortable with a lack of certainty, especially in details. So on the idea that we shouldn't shy away, Revelation 1.3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, speaking particularly of the book of Revelation. Um, obviously, it's applicable more broadly, but and it says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So the idea is that this, this is God's word. Future-looking passages are God's word given to us for a reason, to be able to listen, to obey, to shape our lives accordingly. So even though we don't want to necessarily obsess over speculation about what does this detail mean, we do want to take seriously what Scripture teaches and affirm the clear truths that it teaches, even when we don't fully understand it. Um, I think one way to avoid the temptation to shy away from these types of passages is just, again, to be comfortable with the idea that we don't, we don't know the details. God's given us what we do need to know, and so we, we grasp onto that, and then we leave the rest to God, and we, we see how he's going to work out his plan. Um, approaching in humility, too, just recognizing that in some of those details, there may be good faith differences of opinion by people who take Scripture seriously and who want to understand what God's teaching, and so holding on to the, what our conclusions are tentatively and being willing to talk to, to people and, and yeah, be charitable toward different interpretations, um, recognizing that not all interpretations are equally valid. There are some that are kind of off limits, but there are some that are fairly en- encompassed within someone who's taking Scripture seriously, and just being humble about that. And then, as with any passage, we want to interpret forward-looking passages in light of the full counsel of Scripture. Um, The same Holy Spirit that inspired the book of Revelation inspired the other books of the Bible. Uh, So we're going to be focusing a lot this morning on passages that talk specifically about final judgment. Um, But I think it's helpful just to recognize that there's a lot more the Bible says about God's character that should all inform 
uh, how we view the judgment. So for example, um, the Bible teaches that God created all things for his glory. Um, that implies that the final judgment is, is God's alone to render according to his will. Um, the Bible teaches that nothing in the universe is hidden from God's sight and that he's righteous and just. Um, so that implies that he is uniquely able to judge righteously. Um, the Bible teaches that God is merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and it teaches that he so loved the world that while we were still sinners, he gave his only son, and so whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is our only hope at judgment. So all of these passages um, about God, about his plan of salvation, should inform how we view these forward-looking passages. And finally, we should just be grateful. Um, we have in God's word everything we need to stand before him confidently at the final judgment. This is not going to be a surprise. Uh, so we should praise God that he has given us um, this, this warning and clear truths that, that we're, we can put our confidence in Christ on that final day. Okay, so with that as, the, as sort of the, the foundation for what we're going to do, um, we're going to start by looking at the procedures of the judgment. So just how is it going to be set up? What's actually going to happen? When's this going to happen? And then we'll address the substance of the judgment. What is the standard by which people will be judged? What are the consequences of the judgment? And then we're going to conclude by reflecting on the purposes of the judgment. Why, do we, why is God doing this? What's the point of it? So beginning with the procedures of the judgment, we're going to start with the timing, which is maybe the more difficult aspect to pinpoint with specificity, but I think also an important place to start because it will inform the nature of the judgment and it will inform other aspects of it. And so, you know, again, we'll start with what we know and what's clear. Um, if someone could turn to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. If you could go ahead and read that. Acts 17, 30 through 31. As soon as you have it, go ahead and read. We're going to have a lot of scripture passages to make it through. So. The Don't times be sh- of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Great. Thank you. So you see in verse 31 there, it says... He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So there is coming a day, a time in the future, where God will judge the world. And Isaiah 2.12 speaks in a similar way. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, and then goes on to talk about the judgment. So I think the, the point to emphasize here is that the final judgment is not like an ongoing, continual process where you die and you like find yourself in this line in a throne room and like you just kind of go through this judgment. So I think like in cartoons, there's like this idea that a judgment is essentially like an administrative step on the way either to heaven or hell and like basically like Peter's out there with like a little book or something. Like, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The final judgment is a day that God has set in the future. It's an event that is designed to bring glory to him. And so, yeah, in the Old Testament, you'll see this often talked about as the day of the Lord, um, talked about as a day of, of terror for the unrighteous, um, those who have not responded rightly to God and his plan for salvation, um, where the full glory and majesty of God is going to be revealed in a single, you know, really indescribable event. Um, so the fact that we don't enter into the final judgment immediately after we die, I think, raises a fair question of like, so if, we, if that's not where we go immediately, then what happens after we die? Um, and the, the, what the Bible teaches is that there is a distinction drawn between believers and unbelievers after we die. People usually refer to this as the intermediate state. So that's between the present state where we are now and the eternal state where we will be, either in heaven or hell. There's an intermediate state which is just a, essentially a place where our souls are not part of our bodies. And yeah, believers, it says, will be in comfort with, with God. Um, we'll talk about what that means in just a second. And unbelievers will be in, in torment. Um, and so we're, let's, we'll unpack that a little bit. Uh, so when believers die, they go to be in the presence of Christ and are comforted, awaiting bodily resurrection and the judgment and the eternal state in the new heavens and the new earth. 
So we glean this truth about believers from several passages. So if someone could turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. If someone else could turn to Philippians 1, 23. Who's got 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Amanda? And then Philippians 1.23 is the other one. Who's got that one? Great. Thank you. Um, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Right, so the implication there is to be at home... And the body is to be away from the Lord. So to be away from the body is, is going to be with the Lord. And then Philippians 1.23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Right. When we depart from this body, when our bodies die, our souls will go to be with Christ if we have trusted in him. Um, we're going to also see this in Luke 16, which we're going to turn to in just a moment. So if, actually, if someone wants to start turning to Luke 16.22... Um, see, unbelievers are after they die, before the final judgment, will go to a place that often is called Hades or Sheol. Some people would call it hell. It's it's a place, you know. Regardless of the name, it's a place of conscious torment and anguish. Not yet in the lake of fire at the end after the final judgment, but a place that certainly is similar. I mean, it doesn't necessarily speak to this whether it's the same type of of punishment, but certainly is a place of of torment and anguish. And probably the clearest view that we have of this is in Luke 16, 22 through 26. Um, someone wants to read through that. This is a story Jesus is telling about a poor man who died and a rich man who had not paid attention to him in this life. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things? And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Yeah, great, thank you. So there's a couple of things we get from this passage. Uh, first, uh, Lazarus, the person who had trusted in God, is, is at Abraham's side and in comfort. Um, second, the rich man who had not responded rightly to God, who had ignored this, this poor man at his gate, is, he says, in anguish and in torment. And he's aware of it. He's, he's talking, he's having this conversation with Abraham, and so he's in conscious anguish and torment. This isn't like a a state of, of grogginess or unaware of what's going on, but he's having a conversation. And the other thing we get from there is that there is a great chasm that's been fixed between the place of comfort and the, and the place of torment. And so, yeah, there's some people who will say, you know, your soul essentially sleeps after, after death, and, and I think this passage clearly refutes that. And it also... Uh, refutes the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. So when we talk about the intermediate state, we're not talking about, um, yeah, this idea that, that you know believers essentially are being punished until they can purify themselves in order to go to heaven. Like that, that doctrine just is not in the Bible. Christ's death on the cross is both the only hope that we have. Our faith, putting our faith in Him, is both the only hope that we have, and His death is perfectly and totally sufficient to allow us to enter into heaven. And so, yeah. This also counts soul sleep. Yeah, soul sleep. Yeah, that's what people will say. Like, you're not conscious. Yeah, this, this counters that false teaching, too. Yeah. Well, what is interesting, um, and I do believe to be a part of our to be a part of 
bodies would be in the presence of Christ. But it does reference every time in the New Testament that when a believer passes away, they call it falling asleep. Yeah. It's interesting how they refer to that. It's not death. Right. Right, which is a, which I think is a reference to the reality that in the future we will be resurrected bodily. Yeah, and be in, and be in Christ's presence. Yeah. Do you know where um, the Catholic faith gets the idea of purgatory? Yeah. So the so this I looked this up. This the it looks like the passage that most strongly supports them is not in the canon. It's it's in one of the apocryphal books. Um, and then the rest of it is all not good scriptural interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I I can't say with any more specificity, you know, where the doctrine emerged as a matter of Catholic Church history. Um, I can say it's it's not a biblical doctrine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. It's a little, this is a little bit of a sidetrack from the final judgment, but I do think it's important because what it, what it points up is that the final judgment is a day in the future, and it's going to have implications for, yeah, we're, well, as we, as we go through this and talk about what the summons looks like when we're called to judgment, that's going to also emphasize this fact that we, that this, the final judgment is happening at a specific time in the future and in a specific way that's designed to give glory to God. So, um, Next point on timing is that the final judgment will immediately precede the eternal state. Uh, So we're going to dive in a little bit later to Revelation 20 and 21. I'm just going to quickly read verses 11, verse 11 and verse 1, uh, respectively. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And then skipping to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth, or for, sorry, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So the judgment is God's last act before the eternal state. Um, we see the same thing in Daniel 7, where the court sits in judgment, and then the Son of Man comes to receive everlasting dominion. And I just think, like, as we reflect on that, what does that say about the eternal state, that the final judgment immediately precedes it? to other events? Or? Wait, what does it say about the eternal state? So for believers in particular, the fact that judgment precedes the new heavens and the new earth, what does that tell us about the new heavens and the new earth? It's going to be pure. Yeah, it's going to be pure. God will have righted all wrongs beforehand. So Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So when Christ acts in judgment and re- restores all things, that not only tells us what's going to happen at the judgment, but also tells us what the eternal state's going to be like. The former things have passed away. And one last question that some people have on the final judgment, is it a single judgment or are there multiple judgments with different groups of people? I'd say many people believe the final judgment is a single event where all people, believers and unbelievers alike, are before God's throne being judged. Um, so the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 is a yeah, comprehensive judgment. That's the view that I favor. There are people who read different references in the, to judgment in the New Testament as actually being different judgments for different groups of people, believers or unbelievers. We'll talk a little bit about what is encompassed in the final judgment and see there are actually different aspects of final judgment. I don't think any of these passages require you to say that there's actually different events of judgment. Some people, because of their eschatological views, will actually see different judgments. We're not going to get necessarily into the details there. Um, What we will see is that God will judge everybody. Um, and we're going to talk about the standard that he'll apply. So before we get to the summons, are there any questions or comments so far that you've not been able to raise but would like to? Okay. So the summons. In the judicial system on earth, there is this piece of paper called the summons. So when someone initiates a lawsuit against you, court will send you this document called the summons that essentially summons you to the court and tells you, to, to come to their court. Um, what we'll see is that God is going to summon people to judgment, uh, but he's not going to use a piece of paper to do it. Um, in Revelation 20, verses 12 through 13, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and read that for the sake of time. 
It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So this is the ultimate summons. 1 Peter 4, 5 says he will judge the living and the dead. So the idea here is that all people, believers and unbelievers, will be resurrected, brought to stand before God in judgment on judgment day. Um, That applies to the high, to the low. Job 21, 22 says he judges those who are on high. This is, you know, God who is sovereign over all and who's going to raise people up for judgment. John 5, 27 through 29 says... He's given, he being the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So you see, there's even this idea that the dead who will not inherit the kingdom of God are still resurrected to judgment in some sort of bodily form to stand before God so that, again, God can be glorified by executing judgment on them. So this tells us something about God, and I think also something about us. First, God's voice is powerful. This is the same voice that created the world. He's going to call people out of the tombs. He's going to call people out of the sea to stand before him in judgment. Um, so I think part of what we're meant to see here is the power of God and of his word. Um, it also means that our bodily lives matter. We'll be called before God in our body to give an account for what we've done in our body. Um, that it is true for both believers and unbelievers. And of course, we know for believers, be resurrected with a different type of body, one fit for, for heaven. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't know much about what the body will be for unbelievers. I don't think it will be the same type of glorified body that believers are given for heaven. I think it's going to be a body fit for, for judgment and, and destruction. So, uh, questions on the summons? Okay. So who's going to do the judging? Um, that's the next section here. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches that Christ will be the judge. Um, there's many, many passages listed there. Um, in the Old Testament, it will talk more about, you know, just God doing the judging. Um, in the New Testament, we see that when, it, when it's talking about, the God, the, about God doing the judging, it's talking specifically about God the Son, um, Christ. So, uh, someone is able to turn to John chapter 5. I'll have you read a couple verses there. Let me know when you're there. Yep, you there? Yep. So read first verse 27. Mm-hmm. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Yeah, so that's, that's this passage about the Father giving authority to the Son to execute judgment. And then read verses 22 and th- 23 as well, please. Mm-hmm. Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the honor the Father. Great. Whoever, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So what we get from these passages first is that authority to judge proceeds from the Father is given to the Son, and for Him to execute the judgment. And then in verse twenty-three and at the end of verse twenty-two, there did you catch? why the son is, is the one that's executing the judgment? They all may honor the son. That all may honor the son. So part of the judgment is designed to give honor to Christ. Um, and why, why would he be honored in being the one to execute judgment? He's just. He's just? He was the one who was rejected. He's the one who's rejected and now is is on the throne judging. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, justice and authority, I think, are the two big things that you'll see a judgment. And then also, of course, grace for, toward those who believe. Yeah. Um, the Bible also teaches, 
that believers are going to have some role in the judgment. We can't say much more than that, but 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3 says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, yeah, this is one of those passages where clearly teaches something. We're going to affirm what it teaches. I don't know the details of what that will look like, but it does seem like believers are going to... So you're going to start with the Father giving authority to the Son, and somehow the Son's going to give authority to, to His people to be participants in the judgment. Um, this, isn't, this isn't a departure from God's plan. I mean, God has long entrusted humanity with aspects of rulership, so when He created the world, that, like, that was, that's our purpose, is to to take care of, of this world. So we, we are image bearers of God, and so we reflect some of that authority. And so for him to allow his people to be involved in the judgment is consistent with that. Um, I think it's just also a, a good reminder about the grandness of, of God's plan and the privilege of our being his people, that we would actually get to participate in the administration of his justice even on the final day. Um, yeah, just like the majesty of God's plan of salvation not just to save us, but to actually involve us in that. Um, reminds me of Ephesians 3.20, that he's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. Like, who would ever have thought that we would actually get to participate in that? So, questions about who will be the judge? Okay. Oh, yes, yeah, sir. I don't have my Bible right in front of me, but there's a thousand-year reign, and aren't the elect? which I've heard were also the people martyred out of the Great Tribulation. But it could be all saints, all people, all believers. Aren't they supposed to reign with Christ on earth? Yeah, so, and, and there's differing eschatological interpretations of, of what that means. So some people will view that as a literal thousand years, and then either all believers will rise to reign with Christ during that time, or a particular group of believers, those who were martyred and those who didn't uh, take the image of the beast. Uh, would be would be there. Some people view that millennium as the current church age, essentially, and so it's not a liter- literal resurrection and reigning, but a a more figurative reference to the fact that the church is is now, yeah, that Satan has was defeated in some sense at the, when Christ died, and that the church is now spreading the gospel. So I'm not going to take a, a position on that um, in terms of what specifically it means, but there is definitely this idea that in some sense um, the believers are reigning with Christ during that millennium, whatever that means specifically. Did you have something to add? I was just going to say Garrett taught a class on that a few weeks ago and yeah. so he'd be happy to send his notes to anybody who was interested. So Great. All about the millennium. Great. So maybe you could ask Garrett yeah. for his notes. Yeah. Um, but you are, you are correct in, in remembering there there is a group of believers who are reigning with Christ during that. You're yeah. saying in our teaching this morning that we're participating in the final judgment. Right. So I'm, what I'm saying is that 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3 says that um, the saints will judge the world. Um, I, I view that as a reference in some sense to the, to the final judgment. Um, obviously, the millennium is closely tied to judgment. Um, it's closely tied to Christ's return. And so... Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to be much more specific than that just because, again, yeah, affirm what, affirm what Scripture teaches and then leave the details to God to figure out. But whether it's during the millennium as part of, as part of reigning um, or during that actual final day of judgment, um, it, believers will be involved in judging the world. So. Um, Yes, yeah, so we're going to look next at the witnesses. Um, Bible speaks several times about there being witnesses during judgment, especially of unbelievers. Uh, in one sense, we know God doesn't need witnesses. So Hebrews four twelve through thirteen says that no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Um, Matthew six says He sees what's done in secret. So God knows everything already. Uh, but at the same time, even though he doesn't need witnesses, it looks like he's going to use witnesses in some sense to condemn people. So 
one group of witnesses that we see referenced in Scripture is ancient people who will testify against the people of Jesus' generation, um, people who did not repent when they heard Christ's teaching, uh, will actually be condemned by people who lived earlier, who, if they, who he says, if they, had, if they had heard the same teaching, they would have repented. So Matthew 12, 41 through 42 says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Um, John 5 says, Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So I don't know if like Moses and these people are actually like going to appear at judgment, or if it's going to be recalling what happened to those people and how they responded to what they heard. But there is a sense where people's responses to to God, and particularly those who lived during Jesus' day, will be judged by people who lived before in their responses. Um, another witness that's referenced in Scripture is worldly wealth. James 5.3 says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. So, the idea that, that rich people who do not yet respond rightly to God, and respond rightly to other people in light of God's commands, toward rich people, toward for poor people, will actually have their wealth used against them as, as evidence. Uh, defrauded people, the next verse in James says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So again, there's an idea that the way we treat people will be used against us, or used against unbelievers, I should say, as evidence on the final day of judgment. And most importantly, I think a person's own. Con- oh, sorry. When you say used against, you mean like recorded in the book? Yeah. So we're going to talk about sort of the substance of the of the judgment and deeds. And so, yeah, God. Yeah, let me just skip ahead to that real quick. Yeah. So we're going to talk about there's the way the judgment's framed is that God has has books where every every deed is recorded. These would certainly be among them. Um, and so, in that sense, yeah, all all of one's deeds are recorded and used as evidence or, or used, you know, as to condemn the person. But I'm, this seems to be saying that there is, there's a sense in which not just, not just what you did, but what you did in context as, as compared to how other people have responded um, or how, how you treated other, other people are actually used um, to condemn you. And the point of this all being to show that God's judgment is perfectly just. Um, does that make sense? Um, so with worldly wealth, for example, this might help to illustrate, worldly wealth is not in itself an evil thing, right? So you can use worldly wealth for kingdom purposes. You can use it for good. You can use it to benefit other people. When it talks about worldly wealth being used against people as evidence on the day of judgment, I think what it's saying is, it, yeah, that not only not only did you not use your wealth, but like you had essentially saying you had this wealth, you could have responded rightly to God with it, you did not, and so this is actually now evidence against you. So yes, it would be recorded in the book. Yes, the actual instances where you def- treated people wrongly would be recorded in the book. I think what this is pointing up though is just like this is a, a comprehensive and just judgment based on all of God's knowledge of, of history and, and, and your relationships with people. So. Um, and then most importantly, the person's own conscience. Uh, Romans 2 says, um, yeah, five, 15 through 16, they, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their, conflict, sorry, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the point here being that no one will be able to contest the justness of God's judgment. When he pronounces judgment, there's not going to be an argument about whether that was the right thing. Um, there will be, it will be well established. He knows everything. And finally, um, the accuser, question mark. Is there an accuser on the final day of judgment? 
Um, we know Satan's name means the accuser, but yeah, the way I read scripture, Satan is not going to be acting as a prosecutor on the day of judgment. Um, he's going to be preoccupied. He will, be, he will have been thrown into the lake of fire. So God's judgment is going to proceed from his knowledge of everything that's happened. Um, final judgment's not like our judicial system where in order to figure out truth, you have a prosecutor and a defense attorney arguing against each other. And then you know, an unknowledgeable judge figuring out what happened through their different arguments. God knows what's going to happen. Yeah, question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're if we're apart from Christ, then yeah, God knows our sins. We're going to read about yeah these books that are going to be open where every deed is recorded. Um, Romans eight also says, for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. So that's that's the great hope. But yeah, Satan's not going to be a part of that as as a formal prosecutor. so we're about to move into the substance of the judgment. I want to make sure we have some time for that. But any questions so far about procedure, about just kind of how things are going to be organized? All right. So if I can have one person turn to Daniel chapter 7, read verses 9 through 10. If I could have another person turn to Revelation 20. 11 through 15. I think it's important for us to read these passages. Um, These are going to be two that talk about what the substance of the judgment is in an important way. Does someone have Daniel chapter 7? As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Yeah. yeah this majestic throne scene, then the books were open, what we were talking about. Then um, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Great. And then, Craig, could you skip over to chapter 21 and read verse 27 as well? Uh, yeah. Um, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Yeah, referring to the final state. So in Revelation 20, you see this phrase repeated. Again, the books were opened. Then there's another book, the Lamb's Book of Life. Those whose names were found written in the Book of Life, as we, as we just read, are allowed to enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Those whose names were not found written in the Book of Life were thrown into a lake of fire. Um, these passages also talk about judging people based on their works, on what they've done. Um, so there's different ways to think about this. I think the most helpful way is to think about judgment of each person as involving essentially two determinations. First one is your eternal destiny, your eternal state. Are you going to be in God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth? Or are you going to be in the lake of fire? That determination is based solely on whether or not you have put your faith in Christ, whether your name is written in the book of life. Okay, so that's, that's kind of like the rough division. Um, second aspect of the judgment is going to be reward or punishment, degree of reward or punishment. And what we're going to see is that there, there's actually differentiations in reward and differentiations in punishment. They're actually based on our works. So it gives our, our actions in this life meaningful difference. Or they make a difference. Now, do, I want to be really clear at the outset, as we're about to dive in, I'm not advocating for salvation based on works, okay? That's, what that, that's why that first part is important, that salvation, your eternal state, 
is based solely on your faith in Christ. It will be manifested in works, but is based on your faith in Christ. What I am saying, though, is that the Bible clearly teaches many different places that God will give people what is due for what they did in the bodies. And so there is an aspect, and a sense in which works enter into the final judgment. Um, so we want to keep those two separate, but we also want to, keep both, we want to uphold both of them because they're both taught in Scripture. Um, so we're going we're gonna to then proceed through this by just thinking about what judgment for believers is going to look like, and then by contrast, what judgment for unbelievers is going to look like. Um, and for the sake of time, I'm going to probably, you know, you'll see, like, especially starting with, with this section, there's a ton of scripture listed. We are not going to try to get through all of that scripture. Uh, my prayer is that, yeah, if, if any of this is confusing or if you want to just look into it more, that you'll take this home. Look up these passages, study it, happy to talk through questions. Um, we're just going to give an overview of what the substance of the judgment will look like for believers and unbelievers. So, like I just said, um, the first aspect of the judgment is about eternity, your eternal state. So for the believer who has put his faith or her faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, their name has been written will be found in the book of life. So that's a book that was written before the foundation of the world. That's what Revelation uh, 13.8 talks about. Um, yeah, that God has written people's names in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And so if you know that you have put your faith in Christ, uh, you know that your name is written in that book and that when we approach the final day of judgment, that you will be ushered into that, into that uh, new heavens and new earth. That is the great hope of the Christian. Um, John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, Matthew 20.1-16 is a parable of, of some workers who go into the field. Some of them start earlier in the day. Some of them start later in the day. All of them receive the same payment. And the ones who started earlier complain to the master and say, hey, we, bear, we bore the heat of the day, um, and yet you're paying us the same as this guy who only essentially like, worked a couple hours. And, he's, and the master says, you know, do you begrudge my generosity? It's, this is mine to give. And so this speaks again of the idea that for those who have put their faith in Christ, regardless of whether it's early in life and have labored for Christ their entire lives or on their deathbed, in that sense, everyone receives the same reward, which is being, spending eternity in the presence of God in, in heaven, in, that, in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and we, yeah, we know that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, yeah, 1 John 5, 11-13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So again, we can approach judgment with confidence. If we have placed our faith in Christ, our name is written in the book of life. We will spend eternity with, with God. Um, by implication... Our name is not written in the book of life just because of religious things we've done. Um, again, this is not a judgment based on works. Um, we can deceive ourselves, I think, into, into thinking that. And obviously, if, if we have placed our faith in Christ, there should be fruit. There should be evidence of it, but that's not what our hope is in. Uh, judgment regarding the reward for believers, though, is, is different. Where believers' works actually will play a role in the final judgment. <coughs> Um, but not, based, not to determine whether they spend eternity with God or eternity away from God, but to determine, in some sense, this level of reward. Um, and to start with, we can be rewarded because our sin is forgiven. So again, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verses 31 through 32, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So because Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, that's, that's the foundation for being able to even receive an award. And then God graciously 
will, will give us rewards. So 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Timothy 5.25 says, So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Matthew 6 in several verses says that the Father sees what is done in secret and will reward you. So these are passages that speak to the idea that Christ sees everything that he's going to reward, what what he sees in terms of rewarding good works on that last day of judgment. And so specifically, we'll see in 1 Corinthians 3.8, there's rewards for gospel ministry. So Paul will talk about, did you build out of essentially material that can be burned, or did you build with lasting material? And so Everyone, it says those who build, whose work is consumed, who essentially did not, yeah, did not build, did not live their lives in a way that glorified God. Um, it seems to be speaking of believers because it still says they'll be saved as one through fire, but they are going to suffer loss. Whereas those who built with these with these firmer materials, with 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 gold, silver, that those will actually sustain through the fire. And so there's a sense in which you're rewarded based on what you've done. Um, so that's a reward for gospel ministry. Luke 6, 22 through 23, it talks about, uh, yeah, well, I'll just read it. Blessed are you when p- people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Again, suffering on Christ's behalf produces a reward. Um, There's certainly other passages that speak to that as well. Um, There's a reward for faithfulness to God's call, these parables about where God entrusts um, Mina's talents to people, and then they they produce um, a a return on on that, and they're rewarded for their faithfulness. And many other passages talking about rewards for other good works. So Matthew 10... 41 through 42 talks about a prophet's reward and a a righteous person's reward, a reward for even giving someone a cold cup of water. Um, Luke 6.35 talks about loving your enemies, your reward is great. Um, Yeah, Hebrews 10.34 through 36, your confidence has a reward, visiting people in prison. Um, So there's just many passages that speak to this idea of living in a way that honors God produces a reward in heaven. So what is the reward? Um, yeah, people have different thoughts on that. I'd say at the very least, and this is, this is a lot, it's to partake in God, to be in his presence, to see his face, um, to enjoy him in the eternal kingdom he's prepared, to enter into the master's joy after receiving a commendation, um, to be seated close to Christ, um, to receive a crown of righteousness. These are all rewards that are talked about in different passages of scripture. Um, yeah, there may well be other rewards suited for life in the eternal state. Wouldn't really know what those look like with any kind of specificity. But you know, Matthew six nineteen through twenty, Jesus talks about storing up treasures in heaven. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's perfectly legitimate to hold tentatively to the idea that that actually there, that yeah, this is going to be a new heavens and a new earth where we're going to have new bodies be able to live. And so if God wanted to graciously give people rewards, not to just like hoard up in your mansion, but to like, you know, with God as the center as a centerpiece of, of everyone's focus and living in, in this body of, of believers who are in glorified bodies, if he wanted to give rewards as, as part of that treasures that were actually suited for life, like, yeah, that, that's coming from God. It's a gracious gift from God. Yeah, it makes perfect sense um, if, if that's what he decides to do. Um, but we, at the very least of what we see is that there are rewards for living in a way that honors God. Um, yeah, and some of the, also implicit in these passages, I think, is, is the idea that not all believers will be rewarded equally, but everyone will be re- rewarded in a way that's both just and, and gracious. Um, so I don't think there's going to be jealousy as you see, as we see some of our brothers who were, who's, who did things in this life that were, you know, not trumpeted, as as God rewards them for their faithfulness. I think 
we'll all, we'll all be applauding. Like we're members of the same body. We, we rejoice when someone is, is exalted. And so I think, yeah, that'll be when the first are last and the last are first, like everyone's going to be celebrating in that. Um, and so what, just quickly, what truth should we take from the fact that we'll be rewarded? I think, again, it shows the majesty of God's grace. God's not in our debt for doing these things. It's not like God's, ah, Russell did something good. You know, I gotta like, like, like as if that ever happened. But then like, I gotta, gotta, you know, fork out some more. Like, no, this is all, we are but unworthy servants. We deserve eternal separation from God. He's purchased our salvation through Christ. And then more than that, he is rewarding us for faithfully living. Um, that means that our lives matter too. Um, it gives a purpose um, to the life of the believer. Um, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and go into judgment for unbelievers, and then we'll stop and, and have a, a period for questions. It's essentially the same process, but just a very sobering and striking contrast at the same time. Um, judgment regarding eternity in the same way is determined by whether they have put their faith in Christ. For the unbeliever, they will not have that hope. There's not, their name won't be found written in the book of life. And so when, when God sets up his, his judgment seat and calls them to judgment, they're going to, yes, so the Bible says, stand naked and exposed before the almighty, all-knowing God. Um, in that situation, your only possible hope would be to have fulfilled the entire law to perfection, no one has done that. The Bible is very clear in teaching that. And so God's word is clear that they will then be thrown into the eternal fire called hell. So we, we read those passages earlier. Um, yeah, the reason that they will receive this punishment is their sins against a holy God have not been paid for. Their works will not measure up. Um, so we shouldn't be deceived into thinking that on that final day we're going to have a chance that like, maybe we can sneak by and get into heaven. Um, you know, we know in this life how to present ourselves better than we are, but for the all-knowing God who sees everything and is perfectly holy, there's just not going to be any, any ability to cover up. Um, yeah, we've, we've already read some of those passages talking about how God sees everything. I think Romans, or sorry, Hebrews four twelve through thirteen. The word of God discerns the hearts, or the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Um, it's a sobering reality. And in Psalm one thirty verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Like, there is no hope apart from Christ. And that is why Christ's sacrifice is so important because he did satisfy the law. He did live that perfect life. And then instead of just kind of taking that to his own credit, he bore the wrath of God that we deserve on himself. And he was executed on a cross, taking that wrath for us. Then he resurrected, he defeated death and the grave. And so when we repent of our sins and when we put our faith in Christ, then we can stand before God with confidence. Apart from that, there is no hope. So, yeah, if you're here this morning and, and you do not know what would happen on that final day, I urge you to give that consideration. Put your faith in Christ. Um, the second aspect of judgment, again, is the degree of judgment. Or sorry, the degree of punishment. Um, many passages listed there are talking about yeah, those who, who know the master's will, for example, receive a severe beating. Those who do not know the master's will maybe will receive, a, or not maybe, will receive a, a lighter beating. But that shouldn't give us really much comfort because, again, there's still the division based on whether you've put your faith in Christ. You're still separated from God for eternity consciously. So it's God is just in, in distributing judgment. I think what this is more geared for is for, yeah, so false teachers will receive a severe punishment. Um, it says Judas, better if he was not born, um, causing children to sin, severe punishment. So these are, God will distinguish even among un unbelievers, but everyone will be separated from Christ. So I think the application there is, are, are we prepared to stand in judgment? Um, yeah, what have we done with Christ? Who, who is Jesus?
uh, who do you believe Jesus is? And if you, if you are a believer in Christ, I think the other thing that this should do is fuel our evangelism. Um, knowing that the judgment is coming and knowing that there is no hope for people apart from Christ should cause us to get the gospel out and cause us not to worry about um, any kind of, of pushback or offense that people might take. Um, for, their, for their sake, it's beneficial for them to hear the gospel. For our sake, being faithful to God and receiving that reward on the last day for being faithful to the, call, to the Great Commission to get the gospel out, it's a dual, a dual incentive. It should cause us to want people to hear the gospel. Um, all right, so I'll take a, a, a quick pause. Questions or comments on judgment of believers or unbelievers on the sub substance of the judgment standards that are applied? Russell, yep. um, I, could, I see how uh, a doctrine like purgatory could arise out of this judgment of believers. And, mm -hmm. uh, do you have any, maybe, it does, maybe there is no quick, simple response, but like when somebody says, yeah, well, we'll be tried by fire and there will be some kind of purging of your sins in the afterlife, even if you're a believer, mm -hmm. do you have any kind of quick response to say like the Roman Catholic who would affirm the idea of purgatory? So, so we talked a little bit about this earlier in, in talking just about the intermediate state between yeah, resurrection to judgment. Um, oh, sorry. I'll probably no, no it's last. fine. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, I think the, the quick response would be that it's just it's just not a doctrine that's taught in the Bible that that Christ's death on the cross is both the only and our faith in him is both the only hope that we have and is a perfectly sufficient payment for all of our sins. So the idea that that I think what purgatory implies is that Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient to pay for our sins, and that's just a doctrine that you don't see anywhere. Not only do you not see it in Scripture, but it's affirmatively contradicted by Scripture. And so pointing people to Romans or, or Galatians, I think, would be a good response, um, you know, depending on, on how in-depth. But that would be my quick response, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Good question. Any other, any other thoughts, comments, questions? So in the notes, in, in you had stated that hell is a place in the absence of God. Yeah. Um, does that mean full absence of him, or is it the absence of his, of his goodness and the pleasure of his presence? That's a, good, that's a good question, and I think a good, helpful distinction. So hell is under God's control. It's a place that he has created. So, yeah. It's not the devil that's in charge of hell. The devil is being punished in hell. God's wrath is, is in hell. And so in that sense, he, he is there. It's, a, it's the absence of his goodness his it's gracious all the hand. that we wouldn't want to be in the presence of. I think that's a fair way to put it, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's the absence of God's goodness and, and his, his good presence, yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that transitions to this last point about the defeat of Satan and the beast and the false prophet and death. So judgment is not just about people. It is about setting everything in the universe correctly. So the, the false prophet, the antichrist that will rise up in the last day will be punished. Satan will be punished. Death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. And then the new heavens and the new earth will come. We're not going to spend much time on that because there's a different class on that. Um, but it is, and that is the purpose of the final judgment. It is a great hope. Um, as we, as we wrap up real, real quick, it looks like actually we're, we're over. Um, there's a couple different purposes of the final judgment listed there. Um, I'd say the big thing here is that God will be glorified, that he'll be revealed as Romans 3.26, or sorry, as, as Romans says, I don't have the... Oh yeah, Romans 3.26, that he will be revealed as both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That his grace and his justice will be on full display. And so... And so he will be glorified. Christ himself will be glorified as the judge. And then it will usher in the eternal state. Um, talked a little bit about some applications from that. Um, again, I think one thing to take from this is just that it really should fuel our evangelism and cause us not to be afraid to tell people about Christ. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and have us wrap up there. And then if there's any questions um, or comments, happy to talk about those after. Um, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you once again for your word, uh, for not leaving us um, uncertain about what the future holds, 
but for telling us very clearly um, that judgment is coming, that this, this world is about uh, bringing glory to you. Our lives are about bringing glory to you. Um, and I do pray that we would respond rightly to these weighty and wonderful truths, Lord, that we would uh, be fearless about spreading the gospel, that we ourselves would be spurred on uh, to do good works ourselves, to encourage one another to do uh, good works that honor you. Uh, we do pray that we as a church would be marked by uh, a right understanding of the judgment. Um, we thank you uh, for sending Christ so that we can, we can uh, approach judgment um, in confidence, not in ourselves, but in his, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.